You're listening to Steve Dace On Demand. Lock and load. This is Steve Dace. The Steve Dace Show. And happy Tuesday. Welcome to the Steve Dace Show here live on The Blaze on demand at CRTV. I'm Steve Dace. Todd and Aaron are here with me as well. 888-900-3393 is the number. That's 888-900-3393. Let us know what you think about what we think via the SteveDace.com inbox. Steve at SteveDace.com. That's how you can email the show, like us on Facebook when they don't put me in jail for stating obvious things like men have penises and women have vaginas. You can also uh, follow me on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. And for those of you listening on the podcast today on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, etc., Spotify, the last name is spelled D-E-A-C-E. Coming up a little bit later on, uh, on today's program, it's our weekly edition of Fake News or Not. We're going to take a look at the president's interview with Chris Wallace over the weekend. What happens when insufferable meets insufferable zany hijinks ensue? Also, you know, we talk a lot on this show about a biblical worldview, but how can we trust the where the Bible comes from? We're going to talk to an author who just wrote a book about that later on in the program. Also, Pop Culture Tuesday, we're going to look at some refreshing truths found in the new hit movie, Bohemian Rhapsody, about the life of the late Queen lead singer, Freddie Mercury. That and more coming up today on... The Steve Day Show, but we begin as we always do with Aaron's rundown of what happened while we were away. What happened while we were away brought to you by Intersectionality. Teresa Shook is the founder of the Women's March. She's calling for Linda Sarsour and others in leadership positions to step down after expressing anti-Semitism, anti-rainbow jihadism and, quote, hateful racist rhetoric, end quote. Here's an illustration of what's happening. In other intersectionality news, Eastern Michigan University, the same school that back in the day changed its mascot because racism from the Hurons to the Eagles, even though the Huron tribe was totally cool with being honored in such a way, is on the cutting edge of intersectionality and social justice yet again. A group on campus has canceled productions of the vagina monologues because, quote, not all women have vaginas, end quote. A manager of a Chipotle restaurant in St. Paul, Minnesota, was fired by the company after a man posted a video of her on Twitter showing her denying them service, implying that she was racially profiling them. Turns out the dudes in the video had a history on social media of bragging about dining and dashing, even at Chipotle. The manager was offered her job back yesterday. Moving on, Utah Senator Mike Lee and Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton got in a snipping match with each other on Twitter yesterday over the criminal justice reform bill making its way through Congress. I highly respect my colleague, but everything in his tweet and this thread is 100% fake news. Check out this exchange on CBS between Dan Crenshaw and some other panelists. Well, I, I always ask the question, like, w- like what? You know, like, what is he undermining exactly? Uh, you know, what, what democratic freedoms have been undermined? We just had an election where we switched, switched power in the House. Democracy is at work. People are voting in, in, in record numbers. 
um, I, I always ask for examples, and then we can hit those examples one by one. And if it's and if it's worth criticizing, it's worth criticizing. But just kind of this broad brush criticism that the president is somehow undermining our democracy. I always wonder like, what exactly we're talking I'll about. Be happy, I'll, I'll be happy to add all of the <laughs> things ha- that you I'm happy to give an example. Yeah. Well, I mean, right. the undermining of the freedom of the free press, judiciary, CIA, FBI, the voting process. Well, by way of example, Obama indicted, it was, sure. had many press members under investigation. Trump is not. So what is the difference here? Last week, one of the largest media publications in the United States right, had to go to a federal court in order to essentially uh, regain access no, that was to for the one press reporter. room. One reporter. A, a, not the whole, not the whole organization. organizations, including CBS, did file amicus briefs That's right. in support. Yeah. So, I, I mean, again, I think we obviously would be, it's part of much larger Because it was disruptive. But, well, again, <laughs> I, I, I would argue that our president is consistently so. disruptive in those very same press conferences. And I would argue but, that he how does that an, How is that an disrespect. attack on the press, though? Be- because it's literally an attack. Oh, on the I've literally been attacked. His, so I, 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 again, his, let's choose his, our words carefully. Le- and finally, Bill Nye, the science guy, has chimed in on the all important topic of colonizing Mars, telling USA Today, quote, Are you guys high? End quote. Female or male, gay or straight, pink or blue. We were taught to see these as binary. Now we're realizing it's more like a kaleidoscope. And that's what happened while we were away in two minutes or less. <laughs> <laughs> I never saw that clip. Oh, my my favorite Bill Nye story is how Netflix had to go back and scrub episodes of his original Bill Nye the Science Guy when we were growing up or when Aaron was a kid in the 80s and the 90s. It had too much science in it. Yeah, because it actually said that there's only two genders. They had to go back and scrub that. That's my favorite Bill Nye story. Oh boy, there's a lot to tackle here. Um the Schadenfreude of watching feminists and their fake religion and idolatry go down in flames with just complete garbage like the vagina monologues because they get called on their own horse bucking. Hey, I, I, not all women have vaginas. Oh, yeah. So I, I, that's not quite my favorite schadenfreude story of the week. I still can't get over watching this Democrat who won the Republican nomination for Senate with Trump's help in Mississippi. Just now she's returning donations uh, from people who have been critical of Islam in Mississippi. <laughs> you have any tubbo corn? I, I mean, I, 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 watching John Kasich, I know I shouldn't say I told you so, but God, what the hell? Yeah, I'm going to. Uh, hey, that lesser of two evils, though, right? Because if you did, if you don't vote for John Kasich for governor, you hate America and you want the Democrats to win. And now there's word from uh, the governor's mansion today that if that heartbeat bill and the stand your ground law working its way through the uh, special session of the legislature there in Ohio makes it to his desk, he's going to veto him on the way out the door. Take your lesser two evils and shove it. I ain't working here no more because it doesn't work. All right. These arguments that we make to lie and convince ourselves I know I shouldn't enjoy when some of you make my life a living hell and how you pester me with your fake Republican Party idolatry. But I'm going to. I'm going to actually, I'm going to actually enjoy it quite a bit. So watching Cindy Hyde-Smith, uh, who can no longer hide because she's the same leftist she always was. There's just an R after her name now. And watching her turn and twist in the wind with fake racism. I'm in. 
Um, now let's be serious for a couple of seconds. I know there's probably quite a few conservatives that are very confused, and I don't blame you. I would be kind of one of them. Watching people you respect like Mike Lee and Mark Levin take dramatically different positions on a piece of legislation like uh, criminal justice reform. And our buddy Daniel Horowitz, who will be with us tomorrow, is a huge detractor of this notion. He calls it jailbreak. We talked about this on yesterday's show, and we kind of all agreed that we would love to believe the intent of this. You know, we're Christians who are suckers for redemption stories and second chances. We would love to believe the intent of this is that premise. But we are all skeptical at the way it will be carried out that the right vetting of who who is granted this mercy, the right vetting has been done. And even this morning, Daniel has been tweeting out examples of people who are terrible human beings who would be granted release under the, the legislation as it's currently as it's currently written. Um, in exchange to Mike Lee going at Tom Cotton, calling his criticisms fake news, uh, Daniel tweeted to Mike Lee, former Reagan administration attorney general Ed Meese, whose respect in the conservative law and order community, whatever 11 is, like Ed Meese is the next dial above spinal tap. It's like, when if you're at like a, a CNP council for national policy, which is kind of the skull and bone society of the conservative movement. It's only by invite only you get to go to this or speak at it. I mean, I sat next to Ed Meese at this once when Ed Meese walks into a room, people, it's like people wave palm branches. It, it's like his feet don't touch the floor because folks are literally laying down markers. All right. I mean, he carries a lot of respect and He's very he wrote he wrote a scathing rebuke of this a couple of years ago. And so Daniel came back at Mike Lee, who Daniel loves Mike Lee. That's how strongly he's against this. So for how for how strongly Mike Lee stepped to Tom Cotton calling him fake news, Daniel came back at uh, at at Senator Lee this morning with Ed Meese's analysis of this from a couple of years ago and said, "Hey, is is Ed Meese fake news then?" I think there's a solution to this. Well, maybe not a solution, but there's. I like when we have opportunities to come to a definitive conclusion. That's why I wanted Christy Blasey Ford to testify before the Senate, and let's hear her case, okay? That's why I wanted the, the, the signature that was allegedly Roy Moore's autograph on that yearbook, let's have it tested independently. I like definitive conclusions. Because even if the definitive conclusion is not the one I would prefer, I can live in a world of certainty. Even if it's not the certainty I desire, I can adjust to the certainty. It's the uncertainty that we can't live with, in my view. So, the, so here's a simple solution. And to Mike Lee's credit, he's an advocate of this. I've seen him advocate this, too. And in, in, in one of the things that he said to Tom Cotton, uh, to Senator Cotton yesterday, was he would like the opportunity to address this in a floor debate. This legislation has had no floor debate at all. None. I, I would like to support this, theoretically. I would love to. It's right up. Man, this man, is, this is, is why this my is bleeding why heart my... kicks in. This is where, I, you know, this is where you hit. If, if, if you've ever wanted to, Steve Days have a soft spot. Man, give me a, a good redemption 
second chance story. That's 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 where that's where I'm doughy. Okay, so I'd like to I'd like the heart to bleed out. I want to. Okay, I'm just I'm dubious that this is being done. Be, not because of second chances. I mean, maybe that's what Mike Lee thinks. But because some some Republicans would like Van Jones to wax poetic on CNN tonight. And why do I think that? Because most of my career, I've seen the Republican Party care a hell of a lot more about what's said about them on This Week with George Stephanopoulos than what's said about them by Glenn Beck on The Blaze or Mark Levin on CRTV. That's why. Because I've seen it with my... Why do you think I spent time... I, I Why do you think I wrote for Politico for a while? Why do you think I, I, why do you think I did so many liberal media appearances all those years? Because they don't care what we say about them on, on the Daily Wire. They, they want the respect of the left more than they care what we think. And so I learned early on in my activist career as a conservative, you really want to get the Republican Party's attention. You want to make it bleed. Hit them from, hit them, hit them on the mainstream media platforms because they want, they want the respect of that crowd more than they care what, our crowd thinks. And if you think that's harsh, just watch how they've behaved all these years. Tell me I'm wrong. Give me, tell me I'm wrong, Erzin, right now. Make the case. No. You can't. All right, so I want to believe this is being done for the reasons Mike Lee claims. Here's one way you could, you could settle this for skeptical conservatives like me who should be signing on to this, given my worldview, but I'm not. Let's have an open floor debate. Let's put Tom Cotton down there against Mike Lee and at all. And, you know, let's have an open, let, let, let's give Mark Levin the opportunity to have the clips of the, of the, of the supporters to, to, and, and the case they're making. Let's have some scrutiny. Come now. Let us reason together. I, I think that's a reasonable solution here. And to Mike Lee's credit, he's an advocate of this, but he's not in any leadership position. So I would like to see the leadership that that is a, that are huge proponents of this within the GOP. If the Daniel Horowitzes and Tom Cottons of the world are wrong, then let's have some sunlight, and let's have some let's some have an open floor debate, and let's find out if Tom Cotton is just grandstanding to the conservative base, or if he's got some some you know some real reasons for skepticism, and let's find out if Mike Lee has decided that it's more important to please the Koch brothers on this issue than it is to stand up for law and order. I mean, those are the criticisms both sides of the right are lobbying at each other right now, right? If you follow conservative social media, hey, let, let's, we don't have to do this. The Republicans are in control of the U.S. Senate, for example, and they will be in January still. They're in control of the House right now when they're trying to push this legislation through until the new Congress is sworn in in January. Have a debate and let's just roll tape and let the people decide. What's wrong with that? There's only one reason you wouldn't do that. If you won't do that, then you kind of feed the skepticism, don't you? Then let's have a debate. Show us that this is a, that this is about mercy, and therefore it will be applied in a in a judicious way, and that it is not about we really need to convince all the media that hates us we're not racist after all. Let's see. That's all. The the only reason they're not doing this publicly is, and, and I. It's, I'm just going to repeat what I said yesterday. It, it's it's the why now. 
that would come out. And I don't think there's going to be any good answer uh, to that because uh, as a list of priorities on either side of the aisle uh, in terms of people uh, in the public answering on their uh, own before they are told what to think and believe and how to march, this would not be in the top five, even top ten of people's lists uh, of concerns, regardless of whether there are legitimate issues uh, to target. And, and as and I said, I compared this to, to Kavanaugh. I stepped forward ardently uh, regarding Brent Kavanaugh because I believe the principle of uh, innocence is that important, regardless of whether I believe he's going to be a good judge or not. But what what is the people's business really being done here? I can't smell the people's business at all in this. I mean, I, I, smell, mean a, I smell a rat. Even That's a great point, too, because even if this is the right policy, where would this rank in the priorities of the American people? If, if the American people, go ask, go ask the American people who wanted the Republicans to retain the House two weeks ago, all right? And go ask them right now, hey, we've got one last session here to squeeze a few things through before Nancy Pelosi or something worse, because it looks like she's in danger now, before the Democrats take over in January, give us what's your number one priority for us to shove through before the Democrats take control? How many of the people that you think voted for the Republicans to have control of the House two weeks ago, this would be the issue they would take? How many? Because I think it's like negative freaking integers. Zero. Yeah. What do you think, Aaron? Yeah, I think a pretty good rule of thumb with our politicians in Washington uh, is to I think of them all as small children, toddlers, probably. Um, and I've been in a, I, I'm, a, I'm not a parent. You guys are. Um, I've been in a, around my nieces and nephews for long enough, though, to know that when something is quiet, then something, um, then they're doing something that they, they shouldn't be doing or up to something that they don't want you to know about. Same rule of thumb goes with Washington. If they don't do things out in open and they do virtually nothing out in open, but on issues like this, if they don't have an open and honest debate, it's because they're up to something that they don't. That's just a rule of thumb. That's like a metaphysical certitude almost in Washington, D.C. with our politicians. If they don't do something out in the open, if they don't have a debate, it's because they're doing something they don't want you to know about or they should not be doing. Um, that's what's going on here. There's, I don't think there, I don't think it's any more complicated than that. It's because they know there's stuff in the bill that they don't want out in the open. And uh, to, again, to Mike Lee's credit, he wants it's He's a supporter of mm -hmm. this, but he also wants debate as well. I saw him mm -hmm. tweet that multiple times and he said that multiple times, but generally speaking, this is the reality of Washington, DC. They don't, most of the time they, they would rather just not have any any attention to almost anything they do whatsoever because um, because it just makes their life a little bit harder, a little bit harder. Um, and again, I think we, we keep saying this, um, the, the premise of this second chance, all that is well and good. You should always, 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 though, have your spidey senses tingling when something like this is being done without debate, without open and honest floor discussion at all, and maybe the outcome wouldn't be any different. It probably wouldn't be, honestly, if there was open and honest debate, but maybe, but at least we'd have an opportunity. We at least would have an opportunity to know for sure uh, what is being discussed and what is being deliberated upon instead of just this kind of nebulous, um, this, this nebulous idea of, of what this should be. I mean, I, I don't feel... I'm in the most comfortable intellectual position, not full-throated embracing something Senator Lee is so strongly advocating, given his record. All right, that would, this would not be my normal default position 
would be for him to strongly urge someone like me to join a side and for me to be hesitant to come along. All right, that's that's not typically how the math works around here. But I've done this full time for a living for 12 and a half years, longer than Mike Lee has. And I can promise this. There has never been a single time when they didn't give us sunlight on something they were working on up there. And then when they finally rolled it out, we were like, surprise, it's better than we even thought it was. That's never happened. Never happened. And as Aaron noted again, to Mike's credit, he wants that debate. Okay. But there's never been a time they've surprised us with what they came out of the pit with. Never. There's never been a time where it was like, wow, guess we should have trusted those guys all along. Can you guys think of a time where that, where that's happened? No, no. Regardless of, regardless of who's been in charge. And in fact, most often it's the bipartisan solution that is the worst screw job of them all. Yep. Because the only way we get bipartisan solutions nowadays when we have existential differences, because we, we don't even know, you know, what a gender is, that we literally have to screw everybody. Everybody's constituency groups have to get screwed. While simultaneously sliding to the left. Yes. Used to be bipartisan solutions were give and take. Okay. And everybody's at least got something to be happy about. But when you live in an existentially divided nation as we do now, and these two political parties, albeit imperfectly, represent the two sides of that existential divide, the only way you get bipartisan solutions now is you have to, is one side has to agree to totally screw over its side and or both sides screw over everybody's constituencies at the exact same time. That's the only way they happen nowadays. You know, they're, they're exercise, they're, they're pyrrhic victories, exercises in futility. Let's go to Dan Crenshaw next. If you want to know what what does it look like in real time when you are watching a star being born, it looks like this. Yeah. And I, I'm not saying it's good or right, but if he continues to handle his business in the public limelight, like what we saw in that clip in Aaron's montage, it won't matter what his Liberty score at Conservative Review is. And his liberty, and by the way, his liberty score may turn out to be great. We don't know. He hasn't been sworn into office yet. I know conservatives aren't happy that he voted for McCarthy. Um, but, it, I mean, I wouldn't have voted for McCarthy. But I also could understand why a guy who lost an eye for his country might go into a battle that has no reasonable expectation of being won and ask himself, why would I expend any political capital on a cause that has no chance from the outset, because, hey, I like Jim Jordan. I know you're more of the skeptical bent. I like him. But over the, since the election, what, what like media onslaught did he go on, to, you know, to make a fervent open and shut? Did you see, did any of you guys see that? I've never seen it. I, I mean, so, I mean, why should I work harder for Jim Jordan to win the minority leader position than he's worked since uh, two weeks ago? You know, I mean, I, I didn't see him like, in fact, he did make this case like, four months ago after Paul Ryan announced his retirement came on our show and virtually every show in conservative media. But you know, it wasn't like he was like, where was he? Was he on all the Sunday shows after the election? This is why I need to lead the party. Uh, not uh, maybe he was, but the fact that I do this full time and I don't really sense he's like, he went, you know, cooking with gas on this that, you know, I'm going to make my definitive case right now. So I could see why a guy like Dan Crenshaw is like, yeah, that's the smart investment. My very first political yeah, move, especially the first one, if yeah. my very first play is to, is to throw in with a guy who 
doesn't have any chance to win. Now, Chip made the case for for Jim yesterday, and a lot of his Chip Royce case was that what Jim Jordan had done to strongly support him and help him win a competitive primary and things of that nature. Totally understand that. So I I don't know that I would extrapolate a, a mass analysis of Dan Crenshaw's future based on the fact that he didn't line up with a guy that really didn't go to the wall for his own candidacy anyway in Jim Jordan. But the point is, with how stars are made, particularly on the right, stars are made on the left by fealty to their ideology. And then if you show maximum fealty to their ideology, they overlooked cleft palates, um, uh, felony records, uh, anti-Semitism, open racism, Christian bigotry. They, they don't, those things, be, they don't care. If you, are, if you have the fealty to their positions, then they make you the star. On the right, it's the other way around. If you can own the libs, then it doesn't matter what your ideology is. You become a star, baby, a star. If you're Trey Gowdy and you pull Hillary Clinton's uh, pantsuit down once with the easiest hanging curveball ever on Benghazi, people forget you have sold them out on every vote that up against the establishment your whole career, and that's what Trey Gowdy did. All hat, no cattle. If you're Chris Christie and you can make a 75-pound teacher union hack cry at a town hall, then suddenly it doesn't matter that you think uh, Christian parents shouldn't be allowed to counsel their children against sexual immorality, but should face jail for that. We forget. You become a star, maybe a star. What you saw, though, in that clip is not the contrivance of Gowdy versus Hillary or Chris Christie bullying some you know, teacher union hack that's one-fourth his weight. What you saw there was a grown-ass man in total and complete control of his emotions, of the conversation. And think about this era we're about to come out of. Whether you like Trump or not, whether you like Hillary or not, whether you like Kamala Harris or not, you know what you saw right there? A rare breed, man. There's a grown-up in that clip. And there's going to be a lot of Americans who are going to be much more eager for a grown-up in, a, in, a, in an executive position than they are whatever their particular ideological bent is. Just the way he wasn't having it, and there wasn't any trolling. There was just, that was an owning. That was, that, that was, that was Bryce Harper on a rehab assignment taking batting practice from AAA pitching. You know what I'm saying? That mm-hmm. He's at a different level right there. And just the way, hey, you know, I've actually been attacked. Maybe you should check yourself before yeah. you wreck yourself, yeah. basically. And, 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 the, and this is where the visual matters. Yeah. Good-looking dude. Yeah. He looks like he's got the square shoulders and the broad shoulders and the square jaw. He looks like he's in the, in the CrossFit Olympics this weekend. And that eye patch is just totally both sympathetic and badass at the exact same time. It's like if you were, if you were, if you were the Republican Party's witch's coven, <laughs> and you were thinking to yourself, what do we need to project to the American people in 2020 and 20 or 2020? When this is, whenever this era is over, what is it we want the, Repu- the American people to think the Republican Party is when this era is over? And you, and you threw in some eye of bat and a dash of newt and you stirred it all into a cauldron and you poured it out. That clip right there is what would come out. Am I wrong? Oh, no. I mean, he's. So many Republicans get in that room and try to avoid the very thing that he seemed to willfully, but with class, 
instigate. He 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 brings up Trump and he throws the chum in the water mm-hmm. so skillfully. Like I, I don't like what's the big deal? Knowing full well he's going to get the conversation to go exact. Because did you hear him? Oh, I've got one for you. I've got one. Yeah. And they start throwing out there, and he just goes bing, 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 bing. Yeah. I mean, but calmly i mean that the guy really was an assassin i hope it was all um very uh intentional on his part in and i mean that in that understand the moments understand he's he's an ex-military guy Uh, you you have to know thy enemy Mm -hmm. all right these aren't there's and he's shown he doesn't believe these to be enemies as human beings with how he treated the saturday night live thing but uh uh, ideologically spiritually any number of levels we are dealing with an enemy that must be confronted in the most effective way and i hope that this was all intentional and not just a kind of a happy accident that he happened to be good at in this moment because we've seen now two things come together with him that are going to give a lot of people hope and yes our side desperately does need hope but you know what we also don't need any more of we don't need any more idols so trust but verify yeah that's uh, it's it it was an astounding clip to watch because you just don't one he's still got some cachet i think with the the broader mm, maybe media culture um while at the same time uh i think i i think there is a very rare thing that we just saw there and that is what Todd just said complete control of the situation didn't let him his emotions and you never see that never see that nowadays it was like imagine if Donald Trump were an adult yeah, yeah. that's what that was more in a moment A lot of fake news going around these days. In fact, we're going to maybe talk about some in just a few minutes. And if fake news became like a product on a shelf, it might be one of those so-called superfoods. Just don't take my word for it. Uh, Grab one at the store, turn it over, look at the back panel. And if it says supplement facts, you know what it means? It's not a food. It's made from extracts. It's not a real food. So with the goal of creating a real superfood that might actually be a food, specially designed to enhance your health and help you reach your full potential, a team of top physicians have gathered together to form Brickhouse Nation, and they want to introduce you to Field of Greens, the very first real superfood. And the difference that sets it apart, you'll see it right when you turn that label over. It will say nutrition facts on the back panel because it is from real food. One scoop of Field of Greens is a full serving of real certified vegan, vegetarian, USDA organic fruits and vegetables, complete with those antioxidants that are excellent immunity system boosters. You could really use those here with a cold and flu system upon us. This is daily clean green energy that fuels your body for a healthier and happier lifestyle. And for a limited time offer, you can visit BrickHouseSteve.com and use promo code Steve to get 15% off of your first order. That's BrickHouseSteve.com, promo code Steve, and get 15% off of your first order today to experience a better you tomorrow. All right, let's get to some fake news or not. The President of the United States sat down with Chris Wallace at Fox News, who's probably insufferable enough to ask him questions that might give us some real answers. Let's begin with clip number one. I'm totally in favor of the media. I'm totally in favor of free press. We've got to be fair press. 
when it's fake. But, but the president when, when, get to decide what's fair and what's not. I can tell what's fair and not, and so can my people, and so can a lot of other people. I understand that, but but when you do something very good and they write it badly, and this is consistently when you. As an example, rarely do they Barack talk Obama about Obama whined about fake news, uh, Fox News all the time, but he never said we were the enemy of the people. Well, no, he, he didn't talk about the news. Uh, he didn't talk about anything. I'm only saying it very differently than anyone's ever said it before. I'm saying fake news, false reporting, dishonest reporting, of which there is a lot, and I know it. See, I know it because I'm a subject of it. A lot of people don't know it, but when I explain it to them, they understand it. And, and Chris, you know that better than you don't have to sit here and act like a perfect little, wonderful, innocent angel. I know you too well. I knew your father too well. That's not your gene. But let me tell you, fake I, look. I think some of the coverage. I think some of the coverage of you, sir, and I've said it on the record, is biased. But I don't think that they're most is, of it is biased. I, most of I it don't is know, biased. but I, but the idea that you call us the enemy of the people. I'm not calling you that. I, I'm talking I'm about not calling, we're all together. You don't understand it. We're all together. No, no, no. I'm not calling you. I the doesn't enemy matter what you call. When you I'm call calling, CNN and the New York Times, I am calling. And we, we're in solidarity. I am sir. calling fake news. Fake reporting is what's tearing this country apart, because people know people like things that are happening. And they're not hearing about it. That exchange with the president and uh, Chris Wallace, uh, frankly, I thought, the, uh, firstly, I thought the president did an excellent job explaining where he was coming from, um, using Chris Wallace's father as a, uh, as a lever to essentially disarm him was a brilliant argumentative technique. Uh, and he did it in a way that it wasn't heavy handed. Uh, but almost kind of said, you know, don't BS a BSer, basically. What I thought was the most revealing thing in that clip, though, gentlemen, was Chris Wallace's assertion that, uh, you know, Rush Limbaugh has said for years that the press is a herd. And, 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 and he's been criticized for that. Didn't Chris Wallace essentially just say that in that clip? Yeah. I mean, that was his main defense. Yeah, and that, see, that, I think that's what I don't get because I'm not a joiner by nature. And one of the things that caused me to be never Trump during the 2016 election cycle is that I was concerned, and we have seen evidence that my concern was correct, that fealty to Trump would corrupt conservative media where we would now begin defending and advocating for things that we've always claimed we were opposed because we felt like we had to have, well, to use Chris Wallace's word, solidarity, right? It's us against them. Well, that's what he's saying that he has. On the other hand, the way I operate, I I am far more offended when someone wearing my uniform is a clown or dishonest. I'm far more offended at that than I am when someone I have no real regard for their credibility or integrity to begin with and I'm not aligned with behaves that way. So Chris Wallace is saying there, it's more important for him and for the rest of the press to act as as an organism or as a cult, for lack of a better term, than it is to pursue the truth. That is not the point of why we were given a free press. That is not what the First Amendment was about. He is a, Chris Wallace is essentially saying they're not the fourth estate. We're a fourth branch of government. We are the bureaucracy, and, and Todd, we must protect our standing. That is our number one duty, is, is advancing our subculture, not actually uh, pursuing the truth. Chris Wallace just said that there. 
And if Donald Trump did do that well, it reminded me of a lot of conversations that I had within uh, the Des Moines uh, Register newsroom. All he could have done better is, okay, well, let's do some examples about how they think about me and started reading some headlines. And this goes to what we already talked about uh, with Dan Crenshaw. He just, those, I don't, I don't remember who those people were he was talking to, but they were, uh, you know, within uh, Washington, D.C., political journalism circles of some sort. And instantly they had examples about how Donald Trump was destroying democracy. They couldn't wait to put him out there. That is exactly what Donald Trump is talking about. And that's what should really and, – and, and uh, Chris Wallace is right that he, he has pointed out uh, uh, biases in the past. But that's why he should, he should totally understand why when Donald Trump asserts an enemy of the people, he's not doing anything different at the very least than what people are constantly doing doing him in print and on TV with headlines. Here's the thing where you can see this is where this is where the cult mentality comes in. You know, one of my favorite Don Henley songs from my childhood is Dirty Laundry. It's got a it's it's got a, a great beat but the lyrics are just prophetic. And one of the things at the heart of Henley's song Dirty Laundry is the is the is essentially if it bleeds it leads. The the pursuit of we have to be first. Yeah. We, we want the publicity, okay? What Chris Wallace is telling you in that clip is that's gone. That in another era, the rest of the biased journalists would have hated us then too, but they would have hated the likes of Jim Acosta more than anything else because he was getting in their way of the prominence they wanted. He was getting in the way of the, and so they would be looking at how to, their number one thing was your, their editors would say, you have to outmaneuver that guy. Why is that guy? Why is that guy the number one target of the white house? Why isn't the guy, why isn't the columnist at the Washington? You see what I'm saying? Yeah. That competitive is gone. It's gone. And instead um, he's not a grandstander. We, we, and even if you think that if you work in the press, in the mainstream press, you probably feel as if you can't say that out loud. Otherwise, you're going against the compound, yeah. basically. All right? That is the cultic behavior. Cultic behavior is not, that, is not what encourages self-interest. It's what removes self-interest at the, at the expense of the people it claims to be serving. Right. That's what a cult does. And that's and you can see in the way the press has reacted to what Jim Acosta's act. 30 years Sam Don this is where it's changed. 30 years ago Sam Donaldson would have looked at Jim Acosta one day in a white house said son sit your ass down and know your place. Right. That's not how we behave around here. And I'll be the douchebag that asked Ronald Reagan the, yeah. the questions he didn't want to answer. Mr. President. That you see, that's what would have happened 30 years ago. Now that now now Sam Donaldson with with you know hair white as snow goes on there. Oh, this is just an affront. That's he would. That's how this has changed. Okay. And, and that's that that's, and that you see the president say, Chris, I wasn't talking about you. If I thought you were fake news. I wouldn't be sitting here. Well, if you attack one of us, you take, why, why would I, why would I, why would you see it that way? You would only see it that way if you're right. a cult. That's the only way you would see it. Next clip. Where do you rank yourself? in the pantheon of great presidents. There's Lincoln and Washington, there's FDR and Reagan. Do you make the top 10? I think I'm doing a great job. We have the best economy we've ever had. So where do you We're rank doing yourself? really well. We would have been in war with North Korea if, let's say, that administration continued forward. I would give myself, I would, look, I hate to do it, but I will do it. 
I would give myself an A plus. Is that enough? Can I go higher than that? That whole thing is fake news. No, no kidding. The question is fake news. Clown question, right, bro. It, it's a clown question. You're asking a guy. That's a baiting question. You want you want this clip out there. That's why you asked the question. All right. And and the narcissist that we have as president, who just a second ago showed you he is capable in fleeting moments of adulting, you suddenly throw chum in the water and then expect the shark not to smell blood. Okay, that that entire thing is the symbiotic relationship the president has with the press that both simultaneously pleases each side's base while turning off the maximum of the other side. They 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 are. It, it's a toxic symbiotic relationship the two have, and you see it in that clip right there. What do we call the uh, the Kevin Spacey thing in the um, political House of Cards where you break the wall? You break the fourth wall. Break the fourth wall. All yeah. we needed there was Donald Trump turn. I, I really don't want to do it. He, that, I, I he really, should have done that. I really guys, want to do it. I think we I'm both. So badly. I, yeah, I think we all know what I'm going to do here, right? <laughs> if he had done that, if he had done that, I, I was voting nine times in the 2020 election. Finally, some freaking honesty around here. Yes. All right, next clip. When Democrats flipped the House back in 2006 and picked up 30 seats, President Bush 43 had a news conference the next day and said, we had a thumping. Last week in this election, the House picked up so far its 36 seats. It may be on the way to 40 seats. And your reaction was that it was almost a complete victory. I won the Senate. You but, don't mention but, that. Well, Excuse me. I, I, I won the Senate. I, I understand and that. I think but, they but, said but, 88 years. But this was a thir- this is a historically big defeat in the House. You lost 36, maybe 40 seats. Some would argue that it was a thumping. And I want to talk about some of the ways in which you lost. You lost in traditionally Republican suburbs. Uh, not only around liberal cities like Philadelphia and D.C., but also red state big cities like Houston and Oklahoma City. You lost among suburban women. You lost among independents. And in three key states that I think you remember pretty well, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, you lost both the governor's seats and the Senate seats. Are you ready? I won the Senate. And that's historic, too. Because if you look at presidents in the White House, it's almost never happened where you won a seat. We won. We now have 53 as opposed to 51. And we have 53 great senators in the U.S. Senate. We won. That's a tremendous victory. Nobody talks about that. That's a far greater victory than it is for the other side. Number two, I wasn't on the ballot. Well, wait, I wasn't, you, wait, wait, you said you kept no, saying. I said, look pretend, at me. I said, you look said, at pretend me. pretend I'm on the but ballot. But I have people and you see the polls, how good they are. I have people that won't vote unless I'm on the ballot, okay? And I wasn't on the ballot. And almost everybody that I won, I think they said it was 10 out of 11, and I won against President Obama and Oprah Winfrey and Michelle Obama in a great state called Georgia for the governor, and it was all stacked against Brian, and I was the one that went for Brian, and Brian won. Uh, Look at Florida. I went down to Florida, Rick Scott won, And he won by a lot. I don't know what happened to all those votes that disappeared at the very end. And if I didn't put a spotlight on that election before it got down to the 12,500 votes, he would have lost that election, okay? In my opinion, he would have lost. They were taking that election away from him. Rick Scott won Florida. He kept to say, excuse me, a man named Ron DeSantis 
is now your governor, your new governor of Florida. A wonderful man named DeWine is your governor of the great state of Ohio. So that clip there is everything right and wrong about the media, this president, and their relationship with each other. I think it in all in one clip. Um, there are several things the president says about himself affirmatively that are true, while also at the same time trying to have it both ways. I wasn't on the ballot, and then he kept he said he told us he wasn't on the ballot after he said I won the Senate how many times? At least three times, right? I won the Senate, and then he said he wasn't on the ballot. And then in the races they lost, it's because he wasn't on the ballot because people won't vote unless he is. And then in the races he won, he wasn't on the ballot in those races either, but because he campaigned for those candidates, they won. I mean, mean, there's no intellectual honesty or consistency there. By the same token, Wallace is trying to have it both ways too. See, if Wallace had begun his question with, Mr. President, you put together uh, your winning coalition in 2016 took a hit in this last election and then went to the data and the data is all there, but that's not what he started with. So, so the point of Wallace's question is right on the money and it's a fair critical question. The premise he begins from though is, you know, Bill Clinton admitted that he lost. Why won't you admit we lost Remember when it was George W. But remember Todd, when for two years, Heading up to, you know, it was, why won't George W. Bush apologize for uh, the Iraq war not going as well as ever? Remember that? And why won't he apologize? Why Mm -hmm. won't he apologize? Why won't George H.W. Bush apologize for the economy and apologize for the economy? See, this is, this is, you want your narrative heavy petted. You want your narrative, um, uh, you, you, you want it affirmed. You you want the, uh, the, the 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 you want it to be consummated. You don't because if you didn't if you really wanted him to respond to hey what happened to your coal hey what happened to your coalition bro you'd have led with that, but instead you led with your preferred narrative. Why won't this president show more humility after you after you just asked him? Do you think in two years you're one of the top ten presidents ever? After you just after you just. You just fed the zeitgeist. After you just handed Hugh Hefner another mainline injection of, of a purple pill, you then asked him, hey, what do you think about showing a little restraint with all these naked women in the room? Yeah, I mean, this is, that's not, well, it's not what journalism is supposed to be, but it is what it has become. And so Wallace taints and pollutes his own very credible, critical question by first asking the president, why won't you affirm the fake narratives that we're trying to promote on our newscast here on cable news every night? And then from there, it's off. And then the president, he, he says things that self-contradict himself throughout the rest of that clip. That's everything wrong and right with this relationship the American people are subjected to every night, Todd. And everything you said regarding Trump stands out on on its own regarding uh wallace i think i came out on friday perhaps the most stridently about the fact that this is close to being able to call uh, a wave uh, as it builds and it is something that republicans and certainly donald trump need to answer for um but it, 
it, I think this speaks in part to what you were talking about, how we frame the question. He kept using historic. You do have to answer for it, but this isn't remotely historic. This is, as you diagnosed even before it happened, this is often what happens to some degree in mm-hmm. midterm elections. Mm-hmm. There is something, it, it would have been not historic if the wave had been held off and and Donald Trump has to rightly put back uh, by instinct alone, not with a great acumen for what's actually happened in the past, about what, about what did in fact happen in the Senate. And you pointed that out on a previous show, how this happened. So he's got what, if there is anything historic that happened here, Chris Wallace has it wrong. And, and, and that's what's disappointing about a guy like him who has such, I mean, he's, this is not his first rodeo. And we could all benefit, whether it's from Fox News or from MSNBC, if they just would not be so shameless in their needing to provide a narrative that isn't helpful really to anybody but the clicks. Final clip we were going to play. I think we're out of time. But uh, he, he, the president says he doesn't believe he will do a sit-down interview with Bob Mueller to help conclude that probe. Um, and, and in my view, that's best for the president to not do that. Um, and it's also probably best for the Democrats that he doesn't do that because it, it, it erodes the opportunity to come to some decisive conclusion here, which probably gives both sides what they want. It, it gives Trump a chance to say witch hunt and scream that on Twitter when he's out of things to talk about. And it, it gives Democrats the chance to speculate and fever dream on cable news and use that as grounds for impeachment fantasies. So that's probably how that will end in the worst way possible. Hour two is next. Well, the latest scam of criminals is home title fraud, and it kind of makes sense. After all, that's the top investment most Americans will make. It's probably what uh, most Americans have that's the most valuable in their portfolio other than a life insurance policy. And now those deeds are all online, so it's easier for criminals to access. They don't have to go down to the recorder's office and uh, you know, show a photo ID and simmer through you know, volumes of files any longer. They can just jump right on the website, backdoor their way in, and hijack it from you. In fact, the folks at Home Title Lock recently showed me a copy of my home title with a signature that wasn't mine. But by golly, I looked a heck of a lot like it. That's how simple it is if you don't have that virtual barrier around your home's title. If you've got loved ones who are retired, which means they may not be the most tech savvy, but it probably also means they've got the most equity invested in their home. They are especially vulnerable if you are a rental property guy and or gal, and so you have a hard time you know, following along of, with several home titles that you're juggling at the same time. Give it to Home Title Lock to put that virtual barrier around your home's title. If they see any evidence at all of sinister activity, they will act on it. For just pennies a day, Home Title Lock takes care of you. And you never know, your home title may be at risk already, which is why Home Title Lock is offering a free title scan and report that's a $100 value for free if you visit HomeTitleLock.com. That's HomeTitleLock.com. Back with Hour 2 of the Steve Day Show here live on The Blaze on demand at CRTV, 888-900-3393. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. So we talk a lot 
about worldview on this program. We talk a lot about biblical worldview on this program. And I think it's only fair, if, particularly if you're a skeptic, and we're going to advocate putting, um, uh, you know, uh, putting your faith in the wisdom of something, that the integrity of that something can be trusted. That is exactly what a new book looks to tackle. Rod Gregg is with us. The Word, do we not have Rod? Not quite yet. Give me okay. another minute. All right. Well, when we do have Rod, uh, the name of the book is The Word, The History of the Bible and How It Came to Us. And Rod has written a lot of uh, other books as well uh, about uh, faith and its intersection between faith and history. And when people ask me, hey, why do you trust the scriptures? Except they don't call it the scriptures. They'll ask me, why do I trust the Bible? And what I will often ask them is why they don't. And, and the reason I will ask them that um, is not to dodge or evade, but because I want to know where they are coming from. Some people will, will be skeptical because they don't know things. I mean, we live, re- regardless of whether you are a Christian or uh, a, a, a irreligious whatsoever, the, the role the Bible played in influencing the founding of America is just historically not even a disputed point. Okay, so it's ingrained in the founding of the country. One of the first official acts the U.S. Congress ever took was the commissioning of Geneva Bibles and chaplains. All right, so this is, it's, it's fundamental to what forged us as a people. And yet at that exact same time, we live in an era now where we are probably more ignorant of the scriptures and what they say and where they came from than any generation of Americans before us. So there's plenty of people that just don't know. This interview we're going to do in a second, that's for you. A lot of people don't want to know. That's, that's, see, because I don't want to waste my time either. I mean, if you just want to troll me with, you know, well, it's full of contradictions, name a few. Uh, well, my humanity is perfect. Well, we're done here. Okay. I don't have time for your, your religious trolling, but if you're an earnest skeptic and you're like, you know what? I, I need some reason to go with that faith. That's why we have Rod with us on the program here today. Rod, it's good to have you on the Steve Day show live in the blaze on demand on CRTV. How are you? And I'll have to reconnect with Rod or Rob again. I'm sorry about that. Okay. When you get these questions as a Catholic, how do you answer? Well, first of all, I like what you did throw it back. By you throwing it back, it's respectful. You're trying to form an actual conversation. And secondly, it shows that you just don't have some sort of um, pat script you're following. I mean, inevitably, you do. Fo- you, the more you know this topic, you, you do end up going to the, the same uh, well over and over again. But, but still, you, you do really want to know where uh, they come from. So I, I do always try to uh, engage. Um, but I, I, I think it's really important to talk about, uh, honestly, starting with making sure that, uh, our, we are actually, we, t- we, when you and I talk Protestant Catholic, I go usually the same need 
needs to happen when we talk Christian um, skeptic, because you, you need to go w- and find out what assumptions that they are drawing from. Why do you find it so impossible uh, to take what happened 2,000 years ago on their terms, mm-hmm. at least for starters, instead of simply assuming that everything we know now because of science, things like that, that must automatically mean that everything back then is false. So that's usually where I try to make sure that there aren't any gigantic red herrings out there because, as you know, Steve, almost always there are, whether they understand that or not. Well, the the biggest red herring of, of them all is most of the skepticism about the Bible is not what what is called what scientists call textual criticism. Meaning, where they where they look at at something as an as an artifact, which is the Bible would would satisfy that definition as well. They would look at something as an artifact and and ask themselves, you know, can I trace back its lineage to show that it is it's 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 a legitimate, um, it has a legitimate claim mm-hmm. on what it claims to be. Okay, Mo- and the reason we don't have as much of that nowadays. Uh, that used to be a major thing uh, pre World War II. Uh, that was a major debate coming out of Darwinism in the 19th century, and then they did had these things called the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they started discovering handwritten copies. The Ascends wrote on those beaches of the Book of Isaiah about a hundred years before Christ shows up, and it's about 98 and a half percent exactly what is in your word-for-word Bible translations today. So you don't see a lot of textual criticism anymore. You see hermeneutical tech criticism, meaning I don't understand why mm-hmm. I why I should believe what a what a book that says "Don't eat shellfish" has to say about my right. my gender uh, identity. Right? Those are hermeneutical mm-hmm. debates, not textual debates. We have Rod now with us. Rod, it's good to have you with us live in the Blaze on demand at CRTV. How are you, brother? It appears our audio is not working again. I'm so sorry. Folks. Okay. Well, let's. Can we just get him on the phone? Yeah. Let's yeah. just put him on the phone. All right. The what do I mean by hermeneutical? What I mean by hermeneutical is, um, the integrity of the conclusion. I, I can give you a more precise definition. Let me give you a simple one. Okay. So if you're a seminarian, don't come at me. All right. Ninety nine point nine nine percent of our audience is not that you are making the right conclusion of what is true from the right source material and premise. Okay. That's what I mean by that, that I'm drawing the right conclusion from the right source material and present and, 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 and source or in premise confused myself, the right source material from or the right conclusion from the right source material and premise. There you go. I got it right that time. That's what I mean by that. So when people say, um, well, is it is it still a sin to boil a young goat in its mother's milk? Um, because that is mentioned as something not to do in the book of, Levit- of, of the book of Leviticus. But they and, and the and the implication there is that God has changed or God is different. Okay, and not understanding the hermeneutic of there is an old and then there is a new covenant. And the new covenant doesn't cancel out the old. The new covenant is established because the old one was fulfilled through Christ. If you if you remove him from the math from the formula, the math doesn't work. 
So if you, if you remove Christ from the formula, then all of those skeptical hermeneutical questions come into play because they do seem like contradictions. But if you don't see that what happened at the cross and probably a more precise translation of what Jesus says that the cross is not it is finished, but it is accomplished. What is accomplished? The wrath of God. The wrath of God as articulated and demonstrated by his law has been fulfilled. And so now, therefore... There we have a new covenant. And so those are some of the questions that people get confused on is because they don't they don't understand the context of what's being said here, because this has been taught to very few Christians, let alone very few Americans in this day and age. And let's face it, beyond the understanding, and this goes back to what I said earlier, pointing this kind of out thing out, you actually Sometimes you just need to point out to the questioner, uh, whether it be somebody in the press or somebody who you happen to meet and once asked some questions but is doing it more for their motivations beyond finding the truth, the kind of qu- question you're pointing out should point out to them and everybody else listening that they just don't care. That's really important. And that, that's why I always ask them, why are you – because I right. want to – because, you know, what's the difference between a sheep and a wolf? Right. This a sheep it. doesn't know. A wolf doesn't want to exactly. know. So we feed the sheep and we shoot the wolves, metaphorically speaking here, okay? A sheep doesn't know, a wolf doesn't want to know. I'm not wasting my time shepherding a wolf. I'm ha- I'll, I'll give endless time to the sheep, but I'm not going to waste my time shepherding a wolf. And that's where those questions come from. And how can you tell? The wolf is the guy who quotes Leviticus out of context on immigration, and then forgets that that's the same Leviticus that mocks for stoning homosexuals. Yes, yes. So which Leviticus do you want us to quote here or not? Meaning they're guilty of the same flawed hermeneutic they accuse the Bible exactly. of promoting. So they challenge the Bible as a flawed hermeneutic and then use that exact same flawed hermeneutic to support the conclusion that they want to project upon it, right? right. That's the scam that we're talking about. All right, third time's the charm. We have Rod with us here live on The Blaze on demand at CRTV. Rod, it's good to talk to you again. Steve Dacer, how are you? Right, Steve. Nice to talk to you finally. So you've taken on a lot of work in the past, and I've talked to you about your previous works, looking at the intersection between faith and history. Now you finally decided to go right to the source here by looking at the history of the Bible. Why did you decide to take up this task? Did you not have, Rod, did you have too many friends and you thought, you know what, I just want to have less to do on a Friday night, so let me see if I can defend the integrity of the Bible? (laughs) Well, well, actually, I'm a, I am a historian, and I'm interested in uh, the origins of things and the backstory. but I'm also a, a believer, a Christian, and first, and uh, so I've had a, um, all my adult life, practically, a, a great uh, love and respect for the Bible as the Word of God, and so having an opportunity to bring the historian's craft of telling the story uh, and exposing uh, the sources and and the information, and uh, doing it from the perspective of a believer, um, that was very appealing to me. So I'm very glad I got the opportunity to do that. Then as you began this journey as both a historian and a believer, was there a part of it you were like nervous to confront? Because being a historian, you're going to run into uh, in philosophical and uh, circles like that. You're going to run into plenty of academics and skeptics, right? So were you nervous about, you know, this is the issue they always raise and I'm kind of nervous because we're going to come to this fork in the road and, uh, you know, I'm, it's going to, you know, how's my faith going to hold up to it? Did you have that sort of fork in the road you were, you were a little nervous about going down this road? And then if so, 
what happened when you arrived at it, when you did the historical work behind it? Well, some of that, I'm sure, but actually, uh, it's it's more intimidating, I think, to be to realize that you're writing about the Word of God, hmm. and uh, and that you really, I mean, you write anything, uh, you want it to be accurate for your story, and you you know you look at it again and again and again, you want it to be accurate, and when you're dealing with the Bible, you especially want to be that. Now, this this is not a book of um, apologetics, although it deals with um, with apologetics. I'm not debating anyone. I'm not defending anything. God doesn't need me to do that. This is a history of the Bible uh, written by someone who believes it's the Word of God. And uh, that's the issue I I think that uh, you're looking at in a sense that um, I had to kind of figure out in the beginning with this because um, it's different from writing about um, Lewis and Clark, you know, or or writing about... uh, uh, the Civil War or the Battle of Gettysburg or something, in that um, you really can't be neutral mm-hmm. when you come to the Bible. If you say, I'm not, I'm neutral, well, you're really not. So you really have to kind of decide where you are. And in my case, I thought, you know, what I'm trying to do here is I'm not trying to um, persuade, convince, defend, debate anyone. I'm uh, simply writing a history of the Bible written by someone who says right up front, I'm a believer. And uh, the book explains why I'm a believer, but uh, it is um, a fascinating story. It is both uh, sobering and inspiring to follow the Bible through the ages and how it has always been under fire from someone, it seems, at some time, and and people who believe it in, in many cases. Uh, it's um, it's very sobering to think and read about and uh, spend your time writing about people who have lived their lives for the Word, people who have given their lives up for the Word. Uh, many of them uh, um, just in obedience uh, to God, and, and also many, I think, um, willing to give their lives for the preservation of the Bible because uh, they want others like us to have the opportunity to be exposed to it. So your intent here is not apologetics, but history. But the accurate reporting of history cannot avoid bringing apologetics into focus. So let me... Right, right. So let me look, let me ask you about the history of how the books of the Bible came to be. Because we've got a lot of folks that, that read a Dan Brown book or, or saw the Da Vinci Code at a theater that are pretty confident that these books were just arbitrarily chosen in order to promote the white heteronormative patriarchy rather than acknowledge the divinity of Mary Magdalene. And it was very divisive. And by only like one vote, and it was a hanging chad, of course, uh, that these these 66 books were chosen. And that's why this whole thing is a scam. Right? That That's a popular sentiment within the zeitgeist. When you did the research, what's the actual history say? Well, I think that's a modern um, myth that's not uh, rooted in sound scholarship. And um, I would say that the, um, as far as the, the canonization, which is what you're talking about, how the books came to be chosen, um, all the Old Testament books were pretty much uh, completed by the time of Ezra, Old Testament scribe and priest, about 445 B.C. And uh, you look at these uh, meticulous standards of preservation, of textual transmission, recording the Bible, 
practiced by uh, Jewish scribes and scholars. And, you know, you can always look for a way not to agree, and uh, that's great to have that freedom. Uh, but I would say that you look at the standards that uh, Jewish scribes and scholars use to record and preserve Scripture. Uh, scribes had to, uh, they had to bathe and dress in formal scribal attire. They could never uh, render anything from memory. They had to pronounce every word before they wrote it. Um, they used special paper, special ink. Uh, every page in a manuscript would be examined by an editor who would count every letter of every word. If uh, more than three corrections were made, then the page was destroyed and they started over again. And then before writing um, the name of God, the, the, the scribe had to stop, had to clean the writing instrument, uh, start over with fresh ink, just as a sign of respect. And then the, the standards uh, for accepting a book as being um, inspired as to uh, the canonization or making it the law. Was it written by a prophet, um, someone with divine authority? Did it claim to be inspired? Did it demonstrate evidence of inspiration? Uh, was it consistent with uh, earlier revelations? Um, did it um, display or record the attributes of God? Was it accepted by God's people as being inspired? And so you had this this extraordinary, rigorous approach to uh, this scripture that was unlike any uh, approach to any other literature of antiquity. And it, um, my people are just an extraordinary, remarkable people who were known as the Hebrews and then the Israelites and then the Jews, um, God's um, special people that he assigned the task of recording and preserving his word and also serving as a foundation, a base uh, from, uh, for the entry of uh, Messiah. That, uh, uh, and then you find in the New Testament these books following the same kind of rigorous type of um, approach, of preservation, of recording, of acceptance. And so you had this, <clears throat> I think you have this modern-day concept in, in some circles that yeah, there were a bunch of guys who sat around in the 4th centuries or later, and they just kind of picked some books from random for different reasons, political reasons and all that, and nothing really could be farther from, farther from the truth. And as far as the New Testament can, canon is concerned and the collection of books there, that occurred really uh, by the end of, by the early 2nd century, maybe even as early as uh, the late 1st century. And uh, following this precedent that was set by uh, Jewish scholarship, and also um, by the acceptance of congregations in the early church. So by the time these church councils started meeting, third, fourth centuries, this was a done deal. Mm -hmm. And what they did was recognize what the early church had accepted. Now, where is um, the element of faith? Because we're not talking about something that is uh, devoid of that. We're not talking about just some common piece of... Uh, of literature from antiquity, some uh, ancient um, document, uh, there is the element of faith there. And the element of faith, Christianity has always held that at the heart of those human eff efforts was the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. Accepting, rejecting, moving, creating. Now, do you want to, do you want to reject that? You may. That is your choice. Mm -hmm. But what this book does, I hope, 
is what I, I think readers would like to do if they had the opportunity and the time, and that is it, uh, it researches, it looks at these, um, these various documents, it looks at the people. This is really a story of God's people at work. It, works at, it looks at um, just the remarkable uh, exercises in uh, events and in, in even in history that comes together. We think about technology in the Bible, and we, we usually think, understandably and correctly, about the, the Gutenberg movable-type press, which um, made uh, the manufacturing of books so much easier and so much uh, cheaper so that people could afford them. And uh, you combine that with the Reformation, this revival of biblical-based Christianity that swept across Europe. You put those two together, and you have this perfect storm that causes an explosion in the, the printing of Bibles and, and vernacular in various um, you know, common languages. But other type of technology that we don't think about sometimes, and that is um, Alexander the Great <clears throat> conquered what's been called the, the civilized world, the Mediterranean Basin, North Africa, as far uh, even as India, some people say farther. And with that, when he was gone, was left behind the Greek language, which uh, unified so many people of the world for the first time in this common language. And following that came the Roman Empire that people are maybe more familiar with, but uh, often overlooked is this incredible network of roads, of highways built by the Roman Empire. So you put those two together, and you have this, this uh, mass communication of the Greek language, this mass transportation of the Roman roads, all of this coming in place just in time for the gospel. So, you know, in the book of Galatians, it says that God, in the fullness of time, sent forth his Son. And when you stand back and look at some of these events in history, you see the fullness of time in the sense that what an incredible difference it made, like a perfect storm. So, Rod, I'm short on time, but I, wanna, I definitely got to ask you, before we let you go, I got about two or three minutes here. We, we were talking as we were trying to deal with our connection issues about the whether you're any kind of Christian or you are irreligious, it, it's just not debatable the, uh, the valuable role that the Bible and a biblical worldview played in the formation and founding of the country. Can you touch a little bit on what your research showed on that front before we have to let you go? Right. Well, and I was, we were talking about that perfect storm of the Reformation and the, the Gutenberg press and the desire for return to biblical Christianity. That really swept across Europe, and it was snuffed out over time in some places, but it took root in others. And one place it took root was in England, and it produced what became known as the English Reformation, Bible-based focus on the English Re- Reformation. And the uh, great English uh, British historian John Richard Green said that uh, it just turned the country upside down. In his words, it's as if the whole country became a church uh, with this focus on uh, on faith and on biblical Christianity and all of that based on the Bible. And in that wake of that English Reformation, in that atmosphere, those core values spilled into America uh, with these first English colonies who had just this small open window of time in which they came in and settled these 13 colonies. And you, had, uh, you had a diversity of faith. You had Congregationalists in New England. You had Dutch Reformed in New York, Presbyterians in Delaware, New Jersey, Quakers in Pennsylvania, Catholics in Maryland, Anglicans, Virginia, the Carolinas, Georgia, 
um, Jewish communities in New York, Philadelphia, Charleston, great diversity, but all people of the book. And it was on that faith that the uh, culture, law, and government of our nation was founded. Mm. Rod Gregg, the name of the book, The Word, The History of the Bible, and How It Came to Us. It's a pleasure to have you with us, Rod. Good to talk to you again. Happy Thanksgiving. Apologize for the connection issues. Thanks for being patient with us, okay? Oh, it was good to be with you always. All right, take care. One of the things, when we talk about a Judeo-Christian worldview, I don't know if you picked up on this when you were hearing Rod talk about how the scriptures were preserved um, in, in, the, uh, in the Jewish covenant, in the Old Testament, uh, and then the way they were established in the New Testament. It should sound very familiar because almost everybody that was involved in the formation of the New Testament and what became known as canon, meaning the books that were accepted to be the Bible and the Word of God and, and those that were not, um, mo- most of them were Jewish. And so one of the things you heard Rod say was in the in, in, in the Jewish covenantal community, they were they needed to see evidence. You couldn't just say, hey, I, we found this and we think it's from uh, Jehovah. No, I mean, well, why do you think that? Did it come from a prophet? Did it come from, uh, you know, a certain lineage? Can we prove its authenticity? Do we, can we verify the integrity of this? Well, the reason why much of what we know today is the New Testament was accumulated we literally, if you're talking early second century at the latest, that's just decades after the uh, the ascension of Christ, is a very similar process. You know, um, we've got this, well, we've got this uh, gospel of doubting Thomas that says Jesus as a boy uh, got mad and murdered a bird and raised it back to life, which was like a National Geographic special like two years ago. Well, the problem is Thomas the Apostle like lived. You know, for years after Christ went up to heaven and didn't present this, uh, didn't present the St. Thomas did not present this as a God, as, a, as an epiphany, as an inspiration he received from his time with Christ. OK, and so they had the apostles before they were all killed. They, they had the apostles. They were able to say, yeah, that, that happened. No, it didn't happen. So they were within a generation or two at the most of the men the apostles, the disciples that actually served with Christ or went on missionary journeys with Paul. And so the same sort of authenticity and the same standards of integrity that were so painstakingly preserved in the Jewish tradition in the early stages of the of the, the establishment of the Christian one, and almost all of those were men that came out of the Jewish tradition, many of the same painstaking notions had to be followed at that time in history as well, Todd. Well, funny how all the same people who uh, demand now these days that we understand and expect the experience of every upside-down reality under the sun just refuse to look at mm-hmm. the well-documented, Just and they don't even acknowledge that. I mean, the, 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 the pretense that basically— all of human history before 30 years ago uh, was a bunch of desperate people believing in spaghetti monsters in the sky <laughs> is just ludicrous. There's so much scholarship, Steve, and you just hit on a bit of it. Yeah, with the interview we did with Rod, this just barely scratches yeah. the surface, which is why we we urge you to check out Rod's book. And there's been, you know, Josh McDowell's a Christian apologist that's done great work on this front as well. We're going to come back. Pop Culture Tuesday, Bohemian Rhapsody next.
lot of fake news these days, especially when it comes to your health. That's why I was excited yesterday. I got a big box in the mail. And it says on the label, Brickhouse Nutrition. So when I get home tonight, I'm going to start my own regimen of Field of Greens. And it's aptly timed. That cold and flu season is now here, particularly if you're in the Northeast or the Midwest where it is, uh, it feels, it's felt like winter for the last couple of weeks. I mean, it just kind of smells like winter out there. You know what I mean? Like there isn't any snow on the ground yet. Although I know from my home, former home state of Michigan, they've had quite the snow for the last couple of weeks, but it, it just feels wintry. Cold and flu season is there. Already took Noah to the doctor for the first time with a, with a little ear infection that you get kind of thing you get this time of year, right? So if you're looking for that immunity system booster, but you don't want to fall for another fake superfood. Check out Field of Greens from Brickhouse Nutrition. And one thing you're going to be able to see right away to know the difference between what's real and what's fake. When you go to the, you know, the health market section at your grocery store, and here's the superfood, turn over the panel and look. Does it say supplement facts or does it say nutrition facts? That's, your, that's the key right there. Because if it's a fake superfood, It'll say supplement facts because it's made from extracts. It's not a real food. You want it to say nutrition facts, which is exactly what the label on my Field of Greens bottle I've got waiting for me at home says when I turn it over. One scoop of Field of Greens, it's got the full serving of real certified vegan, vegetarian, USDA, organic fruits and vegetables. Most Americans are deficient with those foods in their diet and because of it, they got low immunity. I mean, God gave us those foods and uh, for a reason. One of them is they're excellent sources of natural sugars, also good boosters for the immunity system as well. You get all of that in Field of Greens. And for a limited time offer, if you visit BrickHouseSteve.com and use promo code Steve, you'll get 15% off of your first order. Visit BrickHouseSteve.com today and experience a better you tomorrow. So <clears throat> one of my favorite bands when I was a kid was Queen. Um, I mean, I loved another one, Bites the Dust. They did the uh, the soundtrack to Flash Gordon. Do you remember the I do. 1981 Flash Gordon movie with Sam Jones? Flash! Ah! Remember the sound? I had the soundtrack album. <clears throat> Pardon me. I, I still remember that album. That, that movie came out like around Christmas time. I got the, the soundtrack album for Christmas and it's bright gold. The album cover was bright gold and the Flash Gordon logo was like, you know, what's that called? Embossed or something, you sure, know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you should look that up like on Google or something, Aaron, and see if you can see a picture of that album cover. Dude, it was, it was, it was, as the kids say today, it was dope. And I listened to that album over and over again. You know, I remember in Little League, we used to do the, uh, you know, we will rock you, rallying cry, chants and dugout, dugouts. I mean, Queen was a massive band when I was a kid. And I was a huge Queen fan. Now, I didn't know like anything about the band and the private lives. I mean, stuff, seven and eight and nine, 10 year old kids back then, uh, we had all the same potty mouths that the seven, eight, nine, 10 and 11 year old kids have nowadays, but we weren't aware of the potty as much back then. We didn't have social media accounts. You know, it was a big thing for people to have HBO and stuff in their homes. You know, we, had, we didn't, we didn't have porn on our phones 
Todd, we had to do this the old-fashioned way. We had to sit up late at night after the parents were in bed and watch the scrambled Sylvia Christel Skinamax signals at, on a, at 11 o'clock on a Friday night. I mean, we had to work. We had to work for our depravity when we were growing up, right? Those were the days. That's some Americana right there. This was brought home to me by my third-grade daughter. We, we're in a public school, but it's a rural school. And uh, she said that almost every kid in her class, she's in third grade, already has a cell phone. That's madness. Yes. I, I we, we, we weren't – I go back and watch the movies we watched, like Goonies and stuff, and like every other word's a four-letter word. And like I don't remember that when I watched it as a kid. Do you remember that? No, the movie is still gold, though. Yeah, it but the reason gold. we don't remember that because yeah. that's how we all talked. Yeah. But we weren't as – even though we most we had the potty mouths, we were not um, as robbed of the, our innocence as oh, no. as kids nowadays are. You know, we we still winced when Ralphie got his mouth washed out with soap in a Christmas story because we talk all we were we were potty mouthed and mean to each other in our own circles, but we would dare not speak like this around any of our parents or anybody else's parents because there would be hell to pay. Now they talk like that to their parents. Yes, Yes. that's how things have changed. The the innocence is gone. So it wasn't until I got up one day and I was in high school and read that Freddie Mercury died of AIDS that I knew about, I found out about any of this. I mean, I was 18 years old. And we we didn't have that kind of information that is so available today. And so he died in 91. I'm doing the math on your birthday. Is that right? Did yeah, you? died in 91. Okay. Yeah, my senior year in high school. So when the movie came, when, when I found out about the movie, I thought the trailer was incredible, number one. But then I thought, given the prevailing winds of the culture today, um, I, I just wasn't going to, I figured this was going to be propaganda, right? And then, uh, then uh, last week, I read a, an interesting column over at The Federalist about this movie. And uh, the Federalist was talking about what a poignant portrayal of Freddie Mercury's life this is, how honest it was. Uh, I didn't know. I mean, I remember as a kid the song Love of My Life. I don't know who it was about, but that actually the love of his life um, was Mary, his first wife, that he left his uh, sizable fortune to her and her family when he died. I mean, and that the film has been attacked by some gay rights activist as being uh, homophobic by being honest about the tension in Freddie's life between his needs. He needed, he had this need for family, for a wife, for children. And then he had these desires um, for sexual gratification that would not provide him these things that his needs wanted. And there was this great tension throughout the course of his life and that the movie accurately portrays this. And then I then I read in the Federalist that uh, it was the the band surviving band members Brian May and the rest of the band members had actually been talking to Sasha Baron Cohen for years for, or for at least a few years uh, about him starring and producing in the movie uh, and starring as Freddie Mercury but Sasha Baron Cohen was adamant that he wanted the movie to kind of really highlight uh, Mercury's hedonistic lifestyle things of that nature he wanted a hard R. And that the surviving band members were adamantly against this. Um, and so was the man that Mercury ended, had the, spent the, a guy named Jim Burt, who was the man that Mercury spent the last few years of his life with in an openly gay relationship after he was diagnosed with HIV. Uh, he was also adamantly against the movie, uh, essentially becoming 
basic. Do you remember the the movies Jerry Falwell Sr. used to put out the clips of uh, of uh, when he was in the eighties pushing back on the gay rights movement? And it was always the guys in the leather chaps and the bad mustaches that look like extras and the village people. You know what I'm saying? There's even a line in the movie, by the way, where Brian May looks at Freddie Mercury and says, "Hey, you know we're a rock band and not the village people, right?" Literally <laughs> says that to him. Okay, um, and and. They, the Federalist column made it sound like that Sasha Baron Cohen, essentially that's the movie he wanted to do. And Jim Burt, who was uh, Mercury's surviving partner, uh, and, and they established like a, an AIDS cure foundation together with some of the, what he, with some of his estate. And then the surviving band members negotiated back and forth with Sasha Baron Cohen about the script and just couldn't come to an agreement because he wanted this to be, you know, essentially the gay animal house. That's what he wanted it to be. Um, but with, but with, but with today's, you know, version of R, which is nothing like what was rated R in 1979 when Animal House came out, right? You know how far gone you are when Queen doesn't come close to being woke enough? Well, it reminds me of watching a, a, a Eli Roth interview Stephen King about horror films and Stephen King's big complaint is today's horror is all gratuitous and there's no morality attached (laughs) to it. Exactly. (laughs) I watched that a few weeks ago and I'm like, wow. Okay. King is like lamenting. Well, there's just no moral story. It's just, let's just torture people for the sake of it. And I'm like watching this. I'm like, when did Stephen King become a visiting provost at Liberty? Okay. But that's really what he was doing. And that's what your point is here with Queen. So now, now I'm fascinated by it. Cause, cause, so now I'm like, okay, now maybe I have to go see this. Okay. And so I went and saw the movie last, I went and saw the movie last week. Now I want to say this from the outset. All right. As we do pop culture Tuesday here, this is the intersection between culture and conservatism. This is not a conservative movie. It, 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 it is, this is not a movie. I can promise you Dr. James Dobson walked out of there and thought, or my buddy, Ted Bear, who runs movie guide is not coming out of this and recommending it to Christian families. Okay, I want to straight... But I'll also say this. If you're, if, you're the, if you're an intersectionality queen, little play on words there, if you're an intersectionality queen, this movie is not for you either. What I found the movie to be, and, I, I, and, and no, I don't apologize for the fact I am visibly not comfortable watching two men kiss. So, I mean, I have to wince and look away. I... I it, 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 it's unnatural to me. Like it, I wouldn't say it's not that it's icky. It's it. I feel like it's something I shouldn't watch. Is, is, you know what I'm trying to say? I do. All right. It's, it, it's unnatural to me. And so, you know, there's like 15 of us in the theater and the, and this happens two or three times only in the movie. And cause the band wanted a PG 13 movie too, cause they wanted to reach a master, a bigger audience. Um, this happens two or three times in the movie. And I, and it's similar to if I'm in a movie and, and something really bad is happening to somebody and it's gratuitous and how it's portraying it. And I feel like I just, I shouldn't, I'm not comfortable watching this. And so I, I may, was probably the only person in the theater turning away at, at those scenes. So I want to warn if you're going to go see this, that, that that is in there. Okay. But I will say this, for a post-Christian culture, which is where I believe we are living right now, this is probably the most honest portrayal and truthful portrayal of a man struggling with the price to pay for exploring his aberrant sexual desires that we are probably capable of in a post-Christian culture. I mean, if we were in a Christian culture, this movie doesn't ever get made because there's no audience for it because of the stuff I just mentioned that would strike people as unnatural. Um, But I can see why there are rainbow jihadists upset with this film. Because he is not happy with his gayness all the way through this movie. 
he struggles with it a lot. And yes, some of the struggle is his parents from a strict Zoroastrian upbringing. I didn't know that he was uh, uh, Farsi. Did you know this? I didn't know I this. I didn't know. Yeah, and that his original birth name was Farouk, and he was mocked, you know, as a British school kid, as, as uh, a Pakistani. He was not. He was, him and his family were essentially kicked out of Iran, from what I remember, uh, as, as more of the rising tide of Islamism was coming up in that uh, in that uh, in that culture, but um, this movie is is pretty raw. In that, human beings, as you hear me say on this show a lot, are not algorithms. They're not formulas, and they're not constructs. They're humans. And while he is really enjoying the gay sex a lot, when his desires are satisfied and satiated, the consequences of the woman that he loves and wants to spend a life with and was originally married to and wants to have a family with, there's a barrier there that he is un, that he wants des- the movie is clear he desperately wants to cross this barrier, but not at the cost of his sexual gratification with homosexual partners. The movie even shows how he descends into the European. A kink, gay kink scene. And we even see guys in leather chaps and bad village people mustaches. And it makes it pretty clear this is probably where he got AIDS. Okay. I mean, I was, I was shocked at this watching it because it's the kind of honesty we're told we're not allowed to have. We're, 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 we're not, it is, it is not politically correct to tell people that choices have consequences. And that certain choices, if they're politically correct, are consequence-free. And if anybody, if anybody, if you, and while you are suffering the consequences, if anybody notes that the, that you're suffering these consequences as a result of you choosing these politically correct choices, they're a racist, misogynistic, homophobic bigot. You cannot tell me I'm an adult and I have to face the consequences for my actions. Some of what, some of Mercury's suffering is definitely his strict religious Zoroastrian family is not comfortable with his sexuality. There's, that is absolutely in the film, but it's also depicted very honestly in the film. He is not comfortable with it either. His manager is a guy named Carl. He is essentially depicted as the gay Yoko Ono. That his desire to, he essentially seduces Mercury, who at this time is engaged to marry. In the film, he essentially seduces him into homosexuality. I don't know if this is what happened in real life. I'm just telling you, this is what the film depicts. The film depicts this business manager, Carl, essentially seduces him into homosexuality while they're at the retreat where they are composing the album that Bohemian Rhapsody is on as he's already engaged to the love of my life, Mary. And then over the course of the next several years, more and more, this Carl basically brings him fully into this world, almost like an, like an army recruiter. Uh, and and to the point that he now, he now becomes so involved in the gay kink scene, he is now isolated from the rest of his bandmates. He begins resenting his bandmates having wives and children. And that this guy, Carl, has essentially, because of his own homosexual, you know, infatuation with Mercury, essentially breaks up the band. And causes Mercury to descend into the mouth of madness that exposes him to HIV. 
And the film, the film, spoiler alert, if you ever want to see it, but I think I need to say this to point, make, to drive this point home. The, 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 the climactic moment of the film is actually when Mercury leaves him and this life behind, recognizes it's not what's best for him. And do you know who comes and saves him from this? Mary does. Mary is the one who goes to Munich and says, come home to your family. And Mercury just picks up in the most poignant scene of the film, other than when he hugs his dad at the end, when he's basically on his deathbed, which will make you tear up if you have any kind of humanity in you at all. But Mercury literally leaves this guy in a driving rainstorm and, le- and, he, and he brings home a fresh new crop of lovers and partners from the kink club. And he just gets up in the middle of the night and leaves, walks away a driving rainstorm, goes back, begs for forgiveness to the band, wants to get back involved in the lives of, with, with their wives and kids. Um, just even thinking about it right now, I'm having the reaction I had watching it in the theater. I, I couldn't believe they were willing to be this truthful. There's nothing politically, it is not a Christian film. It doesn't say that the way he was living was sinful or immoral. It, but I think in a way that for this, for its intended audience, it might even be more effective. Because it's just honest. There are consequences that will come with these decisions. Have you counted the cost? Did Freddie Mercury, was he sure in 1975 when he made this decision? Did he, w- no one told him what the next 20, 15 years of his life was going to be like, what he would miss out on, and are, were all those orgasms and all those parties, were they worth what really he wanted more than anything else that eluded him? And that is pointed out vividly in this film guys and i was blown away by its honesty blown away by it if you have teenagers that are mature and you're concerned about them being totally worked over by the propaganda and you think they can handle the subject matter and when i say teenager i don't mean like 13 or 14 i mean like 16 okay i would urge you to take them to the movie because it will i promise you they are going to be confronted with aspects of this belief system that the school systems and, and popular culture otherwise never show. It's breathtakingly honest. Your thoughts, Todd? Well, since you're already telling me that there was a reaction against this, it, it leads me to believe, uh, from the uh, uh, homosexual subculture or, or the left, uh, about um, believing this was somehow offensive or bigoted, what they, instead of, be, when they saw Bohemian Rhapsody, in their mind, parenthetically, they thought the title of this movie was Love is Love. Mm-hmm. And you know what? Now that you're telling me about this, I almost wish that was the title of the movie. <laughs> Honestly. Because it's, every time you see somebody say that, there is just, you know that there's a, a ridiculous underbelly to the grotesque ignorance that people are using to put that out there. And it needs to be exposed. And maybe more, even more people uh, would have been exposed to it had an, because my my assumption was exactly yours. Yeah. When I saw and I thought the trailer actually from a cinematic standpoint, the music, uh, that actor I can't remember. Remy Malik is his name. Incredible. I, he, he's he, incredible. He's in the, the guy. Movie. Doesn't he play like King Tut in the um? Yes. The movie. The, yeah, in the Night of the, the Museum, Museum movies. movies. Yeah. yeah. I just it, it it had a quality to it that this might be a good movie, um, but one of those movies that it's it seduces you into mm-hmm. the the wrong kind of no. This is it's clearly seducing people into a great fantastic slap in the face that they need. And and so to your point, I hope that happens uh, more, not less. The only thing that uh, drives out darkness is uh, is the truth, and I'm glad that uh, glad that comes out in that film. John three seventeen. 
This is Steve Dace. On the Blaze Radio Network. 